Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the second Sunday of Easter. Uh, my name is Ed Frost. It's my joy to be with you this morning. And may I have the privilege of saying, He is risen. Amen. He is risen indeed. I love the fact that there are 12 days of Christmas. I like even more that there are 50 days of Easter, from Easter to Pentecost, 50 days. And on top of that, of course, every Sunday is a celebration of Resurrection Day. So I guess we get an extra 52, or there's an overlap there or something, but I love it. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Thank you, Pastor Jeff, the whole team here at Community Chapel. This feels like my home from home. It's such a joy to be with you. Pastor Jeff, our thoughts are with you and the family. We love you, brother. We carry you in our hearts today and always. May God give you tremendous peace at this time. My text today is from the New Testament, one of those little wonderful books at the end, the book of 1 John. And I have the privilege today of reading the whole of the first chapter, which is not very long, and then a couple of verses into chapter 2. This morning I'm reading from the NRSV, and uh, I think it may be on our slides as well. Would you hear the word of the Lord? We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. 
Christ, the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Thanks be to God. Guess I can take my mask off just for a little while. Is that allowed? Yes, I'm getting nods and smiles. At least I think they're smiles. They're nods anyway. Thank you. Uh, Greetings from Christ the Way, a little missional community in Manchester, New Hampshire. Thank you for your faithful, loving support in so many ways of of our mission. We're in our eighth year now. Can you believe it? In fact, this summer we'll complete our eighth year and start our ninth year. It's extraordinary how the time has gone by. But what a year this year has been. As somebody said to me, this is the lentiest Lent we've ever lented. And I think that's probably true. I think it's been a year of Lent, or possibly 14 months, and perhaps you feel it as well. And so perhaps it's going to take us a few weeks to kind of get into this Easter season. And truly, the wisdom of the ancients is with us. There needs to be a Lent before there's an Easter. And my argument today is that, in fact, we need to keep a little bit of Lent permanently, even as we figure out what it is to live as Easter people. So perhaps this is the year of all years that I'm learning that lesson. Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for selecting and structuring such a wonderful sermon series. And it's a joy to really be kicking it off uh, with this wonderful first chapter of 1 John, the other side of Easter. So these days, I'm pretty much used to preaching one-point sermons. Uh, Today, you're getting the full show. I'm going to preach a three-point sermon. And in fact, you're going to get a bonus fourth point as well. But I promise you I'll keep it brief. So what do you make of this scripture from 1 John? Isn't it extraordinary? This scripture is from somebody who was there. Did you feel the visceral embodiedness of it? He says, I have touched Jesus, the living word. He calls him the word of life. I've touched him and smelt him and rested my head against his chest at the Last Supper. I can hear the timbre of his voice. I know the way that he walks. He's my friend. It's personal. I know him deeply. But more than that, John was there for all the big events. He was the one running to the tomb and getting there just ahead of Peter. He was the one that saw the folded cloths. He was the one that was astonished when Jesus appeared in the upper room, not once, but twice. I'm sure he was one of the 500 people that Jesus appeared to at one time as well. He was probably sad he missed out on the Emmaus Road because he was there for pretty much everything else. This is a first-person witness of the life-changing, history-changing event, not just of the empty cross, but also that empty tomb. And John has some conclusions about what that means for him and the communities that he's writing to. Let's go on that journey with him. It's full of action-packed words. Light, life. Probably my least favorite word concerning Jesus. Blood, which is a sacrificial word if ever there was one. 
Perhaps your version of the Bible has a word like propitiation at one point. We're going to get there. That's point number three. I kind of chose the NRSV because I like what it did. It broke that word into two easier to understand words, although they're both kind of complicated. Atoning sacrifice, which I think is the linchpin of this. So let's jump in. The story starts, sadly, with that three-letter word, sin. Now, you probably don't need me to define sin for you, but I'm going to. One of my heroes, the Puritan leader of the English Civil War, Oliver Cromwell, uh, was in constant correspondence with his daughter about holy things. His daughter wrote to him, Father, what is sin? He wrote back perhaps the best definition I've ever heard. My daughter, he writes, sin is anything that stands between you and God. Kind of like that. I like the simplicity and the directness of that. Now, of course, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, the light between light and darkness runs through the center of every human heart. So sin is something that we find deep inside ourselves. It can look like disobedience, sure. I think these days it looks even more often like just ignoring God, like trying to do our best that God isn't, or at least that God isn't interested in us, which is, of course, the worst lie of all. It shows up in all kinds of ways. Thank you, Pastor Mary, for your pastoral prayer this morning. This week we have had not one, but I think two incidents, there's probably more that I don't even know of, where people with murder in their heart and a gun in their hand have wrecked havoc and death and mayhem. In my old country, we've seen violence break out again on the streets of Northern Ireland and Belfast with rioting and injury. We live in a world wracked by inequality where there's enough food to feed everyone and yet people starve every day. There is social ill and personal ill, selfishness, foolishness, self-referencedness. You don't need me to go on. Sin is a current problem, bang up to date. We find it on the evening news. We find it on our Google news feeds. And I find it in my own heart, sometimes especially when I'm driving. But I won't talk about that. You know what I mean. Don't pretend you don't also. It's a serious problem because sin has a double action. And you know, John loves to talk about opposites, light versus darkness, uh, the kingdom of heaven versus the world. And so we we can hear from him the double power of sin is it breaks the vertical relationship between God and us. It doesn't break it from God's point of view, it breaks it because it turns our hearts, which are designed to be open, it turns them inward and closed. And as a result, it breaks the horizontal love and relationships that we have with each other. Truly, John talks about fellowship in the context of sin because he has to. Sin breaks fellowship with God, and it breaks fellowship with one another. I suspect there were people in the church that John was writing to who thought they had it down. They thought they had this Christian life done and in a box with a bow on top. They, apparently, there were people who were saying, I don't have any sin. And consequently, they had decided that they no longer needed the Lenten presence, the Lenten practice 
of asking for forgiveness. Lent is about acknowledging our mortality. Easter is about our mortality being transformed and restored. When we break relationship with God, we inevitably break relationship with each other. They go hand in hand. They're connected. We have a symbol that reminds us of that. And when our relationship with God finds new life and new beginnings and new freshness, and perhaps you're in need of that today, you will find it connects you to your fellow human beings in fresh and redemptive ways. The double death of sin, breaking our vertical and horizontal relationships. Also, of course, it damages our relationship with ourselves. There's a reason why when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he had to go on and say, and love your neighbors ourselves. Those two are intrinsically connected. And as yourself is at the end of that command, we cannot have a healthy relationship with ourselves and walk well through the world if we are entertaining sin in our lives. And that can mean just turning a blind eye to the sins we just don't want to think about. Or if just sin seems like a bothersome topic and we don't want to put any focus on it at all. John won't allow that, not in his gospel. So what are we to do with all this sin? Well, he says, Jesus, the word of life, brings the double cure. Here's the good news. So let's talk about a couple of church words, propitiation and expiation. How about that? Both of them $10 words. Let's see if we can choose some normal words to talk about it. Propitiation means a gift I give with somebody who's angry at me to turn away their anger and their wrath. A bribe, if you like. It's a makeup gift. I am sorry. Will you please not be mad with me? Here's a gift to appease you and turn away your wrath. Now, there is something of this in what happened at the cross. I think what happened at the cross was so complicated and so simple all at once. You've heard the Sunday school stories of the angry God whose wrath needs to be turned away. It's not a good image of God. I don't think God likes that image of himself. And so that's why he came into the world as Jesus Christ to deal with his problem in ways that we couldn't. He did what we could not do for ourselves. An illustration, there's a wonderful story in a biography of Fiorella La Guardia, the uh, flamboyant, sometimes difficult mayor of New York, I think from 1934 to 1940, if my dates are right. Somebody will Google it and correct me if I get it wrong. Back in that day, the uh, mayor of New York was also the chief magistrate, and sometimes Fiorella La Guardia would walk to the police station at nighttime, would dismiss the magistrate, and would uh, take the docket of cases and try them himself. Uh, normally, you did not want to be having your case come before the judge if it was Fiorella La Guardia standing in as the judge that night. He was not known for his mercy, but on one occasion, he did. 
probably more, but there's one that survives in anecdote. A man who was uh, charged with stealing a loaf of bread because he was hungry. This touched LaGuardia's heart. He said to him, you are guilty. Banged the gavel. The law is clear. I have no choice but to find you $10 and find you guilty of theft. And then he reached for his famous sombrero, pulled $10 out of his hat, out of his pocket and put it into the hat and said, so I am paying your fine for you. And in typical LaGuardia fashion, he said, that's not enough. I fine everybody in this courtroom 50 cents for being citizens of a city where a man has to steal a loaf of bread to feed his family. And uh, according to the anecdote, uh, that man left the courtroom uh, completely atoned for and with $57.50. Isn't that a cool story? It's kind of what God has done for us. Paid the price for our sin because we couldn't. To restore the relationship with God. That's propitiation. But that's only half the story. And probably not even half. The other half of this world, expiation. Which means that he's going to deal with the effect of sin in our human heart. What happened on the cross isn't just breaking the relational power of sin with God the Father, but also breaking the relational disease of sin within our own hearts to restore and heal and remedy the deleterious effects of sin in our psyche, in our soul, and even in our bodies. Truly, we are both free and healed. Jesus, the empty tomb, brings the double cure for sin. It heals relational brokenness, and it heals our damaged human broken souls. I don't know if there's anyone tuning in today who needs to hear that God can deal with the problems that you carry in yourselves. You may not ever have talked to anyone about the brokenness you know you carry. Perhaps it evidences as hopelessness. Perhaps as purposelessness or meaninglessness in your life. Perhaps you harbor the work of unprocessed need for forgiveness. Perhaps you've carried anger and resentment against somebody or some system that wronged you for years, maybe decades. Or maybe you're the one that carries the guilt of a past wrong that is too dark for you to talk about. It's a skeleton way in the back of your closet. You today can be free of that sin and free of that guilt, not because of me, not because of you, but because of the risen Lord Jesus Christ who walks through our darkness for us and makes all things new. So what do we do with these truths? How do we, like John, make them our own? How do we clasp them in our hands, hug them to ourselves? How do we take in the aroma and the taste of God that we crave so deeply? John has a metaphor that guides us. He says that God in Jesus Christ is the light. God is 
light. This is the message, he says. God is light. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. And in typical Johannine fashion, in case you didn't understand that, he goes on to unpack it. And in him there is no darkness at all. So how does that light work for us? We acknowledge our world is a dark and difficult place. Again, you don't need me to persuade you of that. I have a vision of me walking in darkness through a field, and from heaven comes a, uh, a beam of light that floods just about 20 feet in every direction around me. That light does two jobs. First of all, it helps me not to stumble, and it helps me to walk through the landscape of life. And it does so by shining the qualities of God himself, because if God is light, this metaphor works, that God is giving himself so that as I walk in light-like ways, I do not stumble. Obedience and humility, gentleness, loving kindness, these are the way to walk through the world. But light does a double effect. Not only does it show me the way to walk, it allows me to see myself. It shines into the dark chambers of my heart and of my soul in places that may not be comfortable. And God does his work not only for me, but God does his work in me with this light. And that is how I can be transformed by the Lenten practice of asking forgiveness. John has a lot to say about this. It's the key for the healthy church. It's the key for the healthy family. It's the key for the healthy life. Don't miss this in the message. He says, we can be without sin, and at the same time, nobody is free from sin. There's a paradox there. I'm not even going to try to bridge it. It just is true. He holds them ambivalently, these two truths, one in hand. We don't have to have sin. We can be without sin, little children, and yet if we say we're not without, if we say we're without sin, we're just fooling ourselves and actually we're even calling God a liar. So he says there is the need for confession, for forgiveness. I noticed Jesus was always gentle with those who came to him with humility and brokenness. Did you notice that? You think of all the people that Jesus was harsh with, and he could be harsh. He wasn't always gentle, Jesus, meek and mild. Just to ask the money changers in the temple. Just to ask the Pharisees. Just to ask the teachers of the law. The people who thought they had it all sewn up. Those are the people he had to shake. Truly, Jesus comforted the afflicted and afflicted the comfortable. So, the light shines ever more deeply into the darkness of our world and into the darkness of our heart. Charles Wesley was pretty good at writing hymns. He summarized it with this refrain. The world he suffered to redeem, for all he hath the atonement made. For those that will not come to him, the ransom of his life was paid. So here's my fourth and final point. 
You can't escape it. Did you notice at the end of chapter 2, verse 2? Let me just read it one more time for you, because it's rather wonderful. He is the atoning sacrifice. There's that double action. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is no limited atonement. This sacrificing atonement is for every human being of every color, language, social status, short, tall, fat, thin, straight, with other orientations or gender identities, all of the different categories of diversity that we now think about. The blood of Jesus is for all of us. How can we possibly judge another one for whom Jesus has died? For people of all creeds, the road is very narrow and steep that leads to the cross, and yet the gate is very wide. All are invited into this redemptive life, this redemptive community. That's why we have to love our enemies, because Jesus died for them too. He even died for me and you. He even came back to life for me and you. So let us walk then as children of the Easter light, led by our Lenten practice of continual humility, confession, and allowing the light to shine in our hearts and in our path. God bless you today. Amen.